Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. People love to defend themselves. They defend their choices. They defend their group. They defend their rights, their property, their beliefs. Oh yes, and people love to be right. They love it. It's like a drug. They love it so much that when something goes unavoidably wrong, they devise clever ways to blame other people. Human beings are so committed to defending themselves that in the U.S. alone, we spend $234 billion annually on legal fees. That's enough money to stop world hunger for eight years. Now, what if I told you about an ancient method of conflict resolution guaranteed to work in every situation without exception? If only people knew. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 107 of the Bible as Literature podcast. I think the issue, once again, is this very subtle nuance of functionality and one's reference. Because what the hearer of 1 Corinthians wants to do is get out Microsoft Visio and build a process map. Okay, I'm in box one, Paul. Okay, is box one okay, yes or no? You want to pin him down. And Paul's going to say, it might be okay. It might not be okay to be in box one. And then you want to say, okay, let's draw a line and draw box two. And then draw a line to a little diamond that represents a decision tree. Paul, when I get to this diamond, which way should I go? And Paul's not going to say go left or go right. Although scripture constantly tells you go left or go right, its frame of reference isn't your process map. Because your process map is attempting to say people who worship Venus are bad, people who worship Jesus are good. People who are here are good, people who are there are not good. People in the community are naturally good, and people outside the community are at best suspect. So the point Paul was making in chapter 5 is that your assumption about where immoral people are is problematic. And even if there are immoral people outside of the community, which we are not allowed to discuss, it's none of my business, let alone your business. So if you begin there, you realize you're on thin ice. This is what he's driving at when he talks about all things being lawful. Yes, it's true. You're free to do anything. You can move to any box on your Visio diagram because your Visio diagram is not the reference. But whatever square you land on, if your reference is God's commandment, you have to evaluate what to do in that place, in that moment, solely on the basis of God's commandment for you in context of your situation. 
that may mean that your duty as a Christian is to go to the Temple of Venus and consume the meat offered to idols. If you're trying to put the meat offered to idols in a positive or negative category, you're making something out of nothing, and that is the important point here. Once you understand this, you won't get lost in this endless discussion about whether St. Paul is contradicting himself. He's not. He's just looking to a different reference point than you are. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? When you use a term like unrighteous, adikos in Greek, it's technical language, it's legal terminology. It's not that there's something wrong with courts outside of the community. It's that you are a citizen of the kingdom. You have put yourself under the law of Jesus Christ. So why would you choose a different reference point? This is the point that I was making about the previous chapter and about what he's arguing here about all things being lawful. Why would you go to someone whose frame of reference is not the Torah? So it's not even the saints in the community who are the reference. The saints here function like the judges in the Old Testament. They themselves aren't the reference point. It's the law of God. That's what he's asking. Now, we know that they don't want to defer to the law of God because if you read scripture, you know you have no right to make a case against anybody because you're the problem. So, of course, you want to go settle it with Judge Wapner because you might win a couple hundred bucks. But there's no way Paul's going to ever let you win in God's court. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? As we hear again and again in the prophets, it is the law of the Lord that will gather all the nations to Mount Zion. Not the literal Jerusalem and Palestine, lest we get stuck in an endless discussion on Fox News about who owns the land. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the heavenly city that is posited by obedience to the commandment. The people who have been sanctified. So saints are those who have submitted to the gospel and act according to this submission. If the world is judged by you, and here it's very nice, he's saying, look, if you submit to scripture, you will have a duty to judge in God's court according to scripture, even as Paul now is judging you. Well, like you were just saying, Father, you know, if you have as the reference point scripture and the gospel, then you have the reference point that makes sense of it all. If this much will be expected of you in the kingdom, are you not competent now to constitute the smallest law courts? You mean to tell me that you and your wife are arguing because you claim you've fallen out of love? And you can't settle this nonsense by just realizing that how you feel about each other is immaterial? What is it that I read in scripture? And this example I give is relevant because Paul uses marriage later on to make this point. The solution to every conflict is to lose to the other side. This is the law that they've received and this is what has sanctified them. If they have been sanctified by this Torah, by this teaching, then this would be obvious to them. Because this is how the Messiah, the Lord's anointed king, gathers the people in Zion and executes the judgments of his father by losing. Now the promise of the teaching is that the weakling Jesus will be avenged by his mighty father. It's not as though God is a wimp per se. But when God's Messiah rules as a human being, he is made out to be a weakling because all of the glory and the power belongs to God the Father. That's the key here. So he's talking to the church and saying, if this is your reference, then the way that you execute God's judgment 
can't be for your glory. And the reason you're going outside for your disputes is because you're seeking your own glory. That is the point. That is the problem. And this self-glorifying, self-righteous mentality is exactly what causes the offense against the weaker brother by the arrogant theologians in Roman Corinth. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Again, you'll be dealing with the currency of God's judgment in the heavenly kingdom. And you can't deal with a simple marriage dispute? You can't deal with a simple disagreement over property or whatever, right? They were supposed to give me two bushels and they gave me one bushel because the bushel they were using was not quite big enough and I deserve more and they gave me less than I deserve. Any dispute you bring to the court is saying that things are unfair and I didn't get what I deserved. That's the reason why you go to court. Because you're fighting for yourself. It's ridiculous. So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Again, what's your reference? It's not the church that's the reference. Too often I hear people talking about this as though it relates to the concept of the spiritual court in the Byzantine tradition. Well, yes and no, because Paul isn't talking about a literal court. He's talking about the judgment that's handed down when the reading is announced. Now, pastorally, in a modern church administrative infrastructure, spiritual courts are one way to try to apply administratively the judgment of the teaching. But Paul is being much more specific here. How can you hear the readings when you gather at table fellowship, the readings which condemn you, and then go outside of the table fellowship to seek the condemnation of one another. This is the issue. It's not about the authority of the church or the wisdom of the church. It's about your unwillingness to lose to each other for the sake of household order and community. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? He is hitting the point. He is whipping them literally again and again. You have the law and the prophets and the writings. You have my letters to you. What's your problem? Why can't you figure this out? What are you lacking? What you're lacking is the humility to submit to what I'm telling you. You lack wisdom. You fancy yourself so wise in the gospel, so full of the Spirit, yet you can't solve these simple disputes. He's deconstructing their self-affirmed sense of wisdom because they're making the case that because they understand what Paul is writing, they can eat meat offered to idols. So they heard Paul said that it's just meat. If you want to go to the meal, go. And they put a box on their Visio diagram and a little check mark saying, okay, Paul said it's okay to eat meat offered to Venus or Zeus or Apollo. But that's not what Paul said. Paul said that that meat is immaterial. What is material is the law of Christ, which is that you have to carry the burden of the weaker brother. So don't ask me what I think about meat offered to idols. Ask me what the reference point is, and then I will tell you when you eat meat whether or not it's okay. Right. Like you say, it has to do with that reference point. When here he says, is there not one among you who is wise? Wisdom only comes from knowledge and experience in Torah. 
you rejected the wisdom of Torah, the wisdom of the gospel, my wisdom, in order to follow the wisdom of this world, which you demonstrate in your actions. You have a spirit of this world when you go after judges who are wise according to the law of this world. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? This is how I give marriage counseling. I don't give you counseling. If you come to me with a dispute, my first question is going to be, why are you asserting your ego with your spouse? It's a very simple session. You don't have to go on for six hours. Because I see that if you just would swallow your ego, everything would be fine. And the beautiful thing about Pauline marriage counseling is you can say it to both spouses if they're both in the church. Suck it up. Right. But my wife always blah, blah. Well, so what? She's your wife. Suck it up. But my husband always, well, he's your husband. Suck it up. In French, they have an expression, egoisme de, which is double egoism. Both parties are full of their own ego, and that's why you have a dispute. Once at least one of them submits their ego, then the dispute ends. That should be the unofficial name of 1 Corinthians. Egoisme de. I love it. <laughs> it's exactly the point. Paul is just taking out the sword of faith and cutting everybody down to size. And the funny thing is that that is true wisdom. That is really how life works. I can't think of one dispute that has ever been resolved where someone didn't suck it up and bow their head to the Lord. With your children, with your spouse, at work, when there's a fight and you need to adjudicate it, you say, uh, you know, I disagree with so-and-so. Okay, why won't you submit to them? Let's talk about that. Are you submitting to them? No. Okay, I think that's the problem, actually. Not whatever you said. What's your reference point for what you said? It's not the law of Christ. Explain to me how you are the loser in this situation, and then we can move on. And as soon as you're ready to embrace how much of the loser you are in this situation, then I think we can settle this. And then you will have good household order, according to 1 Corinthians. Until then, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And when Paul talks this way, it always sends a chill up my spine because once you've read scripture enough, you realize that you, the addressee of scripture, are unrighteous, which means you, the addressee of scripture, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And if you have half an ounce of honesty with yourself, you know that this lengthy list of codified sins from the Old Testament is structured in such a way so as to include the whole array of sins committed by everyone. That's number one. There's not one person who, upon hearing this, if they are honest with themselves, believes that this list does not apply to them. You cannot single out one type of sin here. That's number one. Number two, you can, however, look at the common theme that weaves all these different sins together, and that is idolatry. It is the betrayal of the teaching, which is what Paul has been dealing with when he's talking about household order. So you can't look at this and think about it in terms of sexuality or in terms of the passions, the way the theologians talk. You have to look at this and say, Paul is showing you 
that one way or another, everyone is committing immorality against the headship of the gospel in the church. That is the point. In light of the previous verses, you have to allow yourself to be wronged and not worry about others wronging you. It's not about you and your ego and inflating your own ego. It's about submitting always to the other. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were declared righteous. The word here is justified, but that's, of course, a tricky translation because, as I've said many times, and as you've pointed out, Richard, in Greek, it's the same word. It's not a different word than what is usually translated righteous or righteousness. So you were declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And the key here is that the righteousness comes from God. It's not because you ceased to be a betrayer. It's because God brought you into the household despite the fact that you were a betrayer so that you could conduct yourself according to the law of Christ. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And here I think of a powerful verse that my father and I spoke of often as he approached his own death. This beautiful line from Genesis, sin is crouching at the door, but you must master it. You must master sin. Sin cannot be your master. And I find that to be a very encouraging way of talking about sin because it's not about ascesis. It's not about purity. It's about not being fooled or outsmarted by your opponent. And here Paul is giving you a way to outsmart all sin by understanding with absolute clarity what your one reference point is that brought you into this household despite the fact that you're a betrayer. And that is the law of Christ, which is the love of neighbor, but especially the weaker brother. If you really cling to that, you're suddenly set free from this trap of sin crouching at your door. Now, there's a seeming contradiction here because he just said that fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, etc., will not inherit the kingdom. Then, two verses later, he says, and I'm allowed to do anything. But wait, but Paul, you just gave us a nice wait, list of let's, what... Let's go back to box wait, one. Wait, you told us that yes. these are not allowed. And he says, but, but as a matter of fact, I'm allowed to do any of them. Now, Paul is going to thankfully tease this out, explain it to us, because it doesn't make sense at first. Such were some of you, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. And so a lot of people think this means, okay, I'm not going to sin anymore. And then Paul says... I can sin as much as I want. I'm not bound by this. Wait, how does that work? Well, he says, not all things are profitable. What things further the gospel? What things further this law that is supposed to deflate my ego? I can do anything I want, but as soon as my ego gets in the way, then things are going to go south. This is where the gospel becomes really fully pregnant as gospel because Paul is laying it on the line you want to control God. You want to tell God, which box does this sin go in so that I can check it off or cancel it off? So that I can find out the correct workflow to get myself to a pure state. And Paul's throwing all that out the window. There is no box. There is no sure footing. You are completely at sea without a rudder. The only lifeline you have is the law of Christ. 
And that law allows you to go anywhere and do anything, which means you can never judge. You can never look at any behavior and say anything affirmatively about it because you don't know the reference point for the behavior. That can only be determined when we see the outcome at the end, when God gathers everyone together in Zion to separate the sheep from the goats. So if that's the case, how can you tell me it's okay or not okay to eat food? Because here's how it works. He says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. People want to have the diagram, the process, that now says, okay, this is what's going to allow me to get to the kingdom like I want. So, don't touch my diagram. Leave, stop. stop. Yeah. Don't touch it. Don't move the boxes. Don't move the arrows. I want my flow chart nice and neat. Okay, I'm going to follow this. Hey, by the way, can you do this? Let me check my diagram. No, no, I can't do that. I thought that the diagram was allowing you to get to the kingdom. Now it sounds like the diagram is dictating to you how then you're supposed to live. Paul says, yeah, I'm fine with whatever diagram you've got. It's just that you're going to have to change it if it doesn't work. But my diagram, now you're being mastered by your diagram. Exactly. Now the diagram has become the master, and that has become your reference point no longer the gospel, which says... Whenever your diagram doesn't work, consign it to Satan and come back with a new diagram for every situation. By the way, none of them work. So people who are risk-averse will spend the rest of their life in planning sessions drawing very complicated process flows to account for every permutation. Paul, like a wise manager, is giving his team a shortcut. If you know what the ultimate goal is, you don't have to plan for every contingency because having the correct end in mind will teach you what to do right now. That's the spirit of God that he says here. The justification has been through the spirit of God because it will control your actions if you have it. The reason you want to build your diagrams and then call that wisdom, which is what theologians do, is because you're not wise. You want fleshly wisdom. You're insecure. You are afraid and you want to know how to be right so that you can stand your ground. And the whole letter is about losing your ground for the sake of the law of love. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. You are quibbling over temporary things, essentially. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. Meaning, your body was given to you to serve God's commandment, which is to show fidelity to the instruction in the way that you show fidelity to one another as the body politic of the gospel. And the Lord, he says, is for the body, meaning that there's this relationship where God gives instruction for your well-being as a community, and you express gratitude for this generous gift of wisdom by submitting to this wisdom. If you believe that you have died to yourself, you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified, all these things, meaning your ego was cleansed from you, then what you have left is just the Lord's. Well, am I supposed to eat this food or not? Well, it depends what the Lord needs of you right then. If you have the Spirit of God, the Lord directs you. Now, it's not about thinking whether you have the Spirit of God or not, and therefore I'm allowed to do what I want. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you can tell where the Spirit has been by the actions, whether the Spirit was behind that action or not. So here what he's saying is that the body belongs to the Lord to do with as he wants. It's not about the food. It's not about what you eat. It's about what is it for? What's the end? 
And that's where you need the wisdom. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. And we know in 1 Corinthians that this power is not a thing to be trifled with, and it is not pleasant. So he is not talking about the resurrection here as an encouragement. He is shaming them and judging them. So here he is threatening them. You have this worldly prioritization going on in your fleshly brain. And you're forgetting the most important point of this whole discussion, that God raised the Lord Jesus Christ in power. Yeah, the which Lord. Which means he is coming in power. The Lord Jesus Christ had no problem when he was raised in power because he had submitted completely to God's will, his Father's will. You, on the other hand, when you're raised, may have more problems because you may not have submitted to your Father's will in the way that Jesus did. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. And the prostitution here, the immorality here that Paul is addressing, is about your fidelity to the law of Christ, which is your fidelity to the neighbor. There are many ways to screw people over that have nothing to do with sex. And that is the key here. We often assume that this prostitution has to do with being faithful to one's spouse. But that's not what this context is talking about. The context is talking about remaining faithful to the Lord. And this is where we have to remain faithful because as soon as our loyalty wavers, we join to the prostitute. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Flee this betrayal of relationships in the community of the gospel, the body politic of Jesus. Every other sin that a man commits is outside this body. And he's speaking literally of the human body, but metaphorically of the body of the church. But the immoral man sins against his own body, his own family, his own relationships, his own brethren. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body, in your fleshly body, but in the body politic, the community of the gospel of Jesus yeah, it has Christ. It has a beautiful double meaning that the individual body, every action that you perform must be loyal to the Lord. Anything that wavers is disloyalty. Yeah, but I was only doing something small. Okay, so you're only a little disloyal, but you were still disloyal. And any action you take that goes against this loyalty is something that goes against the body. It begins to divide the community because it's about your ego and your unwillingness to submit to the law of Christ, to the gospel, to the Torah, which undermines your ego and is about you taking actions that are not necessarily good for yourself, but that are good for the other. Thanks very much, Dr. Benson. Thank you, Father. the bible as literature thanks for listening the bible as literature is a production of the ephesus school network